Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. Suicide is the most preventable cause of death on the planet. The great thing about going to the hospital with heart attack symptom is there's no waiting. Nobody gives a ship about HIPAA. And so they rolled me back into a little triage unit, and the nurse said to me, Frank, I have one question I have to ask you. And I said through my pain, I'm married, honey, but I love the way you think. That was Frank King, a suicide prevention speaker who uses humor on stage and in his personal life. For 20 years, he was a comedy writer for Jay Leno. You'll hear more from my interview with Frank in a moment. And that includes the media backlash earlier this year after Frank headed back home for Oregon in the US from Cambodia, where the cruise ship he was a performer had docked amidst fears of COVID-19 on board. Frank says he was an innocent victim and the backlash has cost him professionally. Yes, I've, I've been pitching a TEDx talk called Going Viral, how the cancel culture and the coronavirus kill my comedy career because that's what was happening. It's that cancel culture. There's this moral outrage of either an actual or perceived violation of somebody's morals and they go after you to you know to ruin your career to to you know get you make it so that you don't get booked again or that you lose bookings frank king is also known as the mental health comedian frank fought a lifetime battle with depression thoughts of suicide and in his own words turned that long dark journey of the soul into five tedx talks he believes that where there is humor, there is hope. Where there is laughter, there is life. Nobody dies laughing, he says. The right person at the right time, with the right information, can save a life. My full interview with Frank King, a suicide prevention speaker, is coming up in a wee moment. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. Well, it's just grand to have you back. I always love that... Irish Celtic Cajun intro track. In a wee moment, my interview with the awesome Frank King. If you've been following, he made news headlines worldwide recently when he supposedly jumped ship in a reckless manner amidst a COVID-19 scare aboard a cruise ship. He'll give us his side of the story. He's a suicide prevention speaker and a comedian who had a long career with Jay Leno. We'll talk about that. You can also replay this episode later on our YouTube channel, Life on Planet Earth. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. I first asked Frank King how comedy and suicide go together. I think a comedian is a good choice as a suicide prevention speaker for a number of reasons, and I'm a good choice as well. Uh, comedian's job isn't always has been since the time of the court jester. 
speak truth to power on behalf of the powerless with humor. And I believe I speak truth to the power of mental illness on behalf of those often powerless in its grip with humor. Uh, number two, I believe where there's humor, there's hope. Where there's laughter, there's life that nobody dies laughing. And three, depression, suicide run in my family. It's called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days. I'll spare you the gory details, but it's in my first TEDx talk. If you go to YouTube, type in Frank King, A Matter of Laugh, L-A-U-G-H, or Death, you'll hear the story of my great aunt and discovering her suicide. I myself came close enough done by suicide 2010 after the last recession, a sentence I didn't think I'd utter in my lifetime, the last recession. Um, business dropped off 80%. We lost everything we'd worked for in 25 years in a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Uh, spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger. I say that in all my keynotes. A friend of mine was in the audience one time, came up afterwards, goes, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, can you try to sound a little less disappointed? Uh, again, the answer to that question is in my first first of five TED Talks. I just did my fifth one in Durango, Colorado, all on mental health. Frank King had a long and successful career with Jay Leno as a comedy writer. Frank was then known as a fax writer for The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Yes, what happened was I started comedy in San Diego at the Comedy Store. There's a branch of it, you know, the world-famous comedy store on Sunset in La Jolla, California. It's still there, by the way. And about a year in, I won a local contest. Got a thousand bucks for doing it. Told my girlfriend, now my wife, I'm going on the road to do stand-up comedy. You want to come along? And she said yes. So we put everything into storage. We couldn't fit into my tiny little Dodge Colt. And we were on the road for 2,629 nights in a row nonstop, which is roughly seven years and change. No home, just post office box and an answering service. And somewhere along the way, I bumped into somebody who was writing jokes for Jay Leno on contract, on spec. What was happening was Jay had been selected as the permanent guest host for Johnny, and Johnny would, at the last moment, tell his staff, I'm taking next week off, which meant Jay had four nights to cover, because Johnny always had a, a rerun on Monday nights, the best of Carson. But Tuesday through Friday, Jay had a monologue each night with 18 jokes. And, you know, writing 18 jokes times four on short notice, so he started hiring comics on a contract basis to submit topical political jokes. And if he did it, you got 50 bucks. And so I filled out the independent contractor paperwork, got the fax number, because that's how they used to do it. We were called fax writers at the time. And there was a bunch of us. And what they would do, every couple of years, they would change the fax number to cut the wheat from the chaff. People who weren't producing would not get the new fax number, but I got it every time. And then when Jay took over the Tonight Show for real, I had two jokes on his very first show, and I got the new fax number. So I stayed with him until he, you know, left NBC um, and left the Tonight Show uh, a number of years ago. Well, I read several newspapers today. Read the USA Today, read the New York Times, and I could get my hands on it, and the local paper, and. I would also watch the monologue from the night before, make a note of the premises he chose, 
and see if I couldn't write another joke on the same premise. Because obviously he liked the premise. He did a joke on that premise. And the one I remember is, he said, uh, yeah, you know, the uh, Swiss, the Swiss are um, they're starting to manufacture condoms. Do you really want to buy a condom from a country that, you know, makes cheese with holes in it? And so I thought about that for a while. And the joke that he bought that he did the following night, I, you know, the Swiss, uh, they're making condoms now. Of course, you know the Swiss. It's not just a condom. It's a corkscrew. It's a screwdriver. It's a tiny pair of scissors. So between <laughs> three newspapers and watching the monologue, um, I, that's, how, that's how I wrote those. You know, and, and all I, I sent in a dozen, two dozen a day. They weren't all spectacular, but quite a few of them were. Jay liked your humor. So humor and suicide go hand in glove. You know, in, in a number of ways, we have a podcast of our own called the Suicide Prevention Punchline. It's a takeoff on the Suicide Prevention Lifeline because so many comedians, creatives, and entrepreneurs, by the way, commit suicide or, or die by suicide. And so the – and I bet there are many more comedians with mental illness than those who are out of the closet about it, I guess. I I I, think, I I I discovered I believe that that um, pretty much everybody I've ever met who had a mental illness who wasn't completely dysfunctional also had a corresponding mental ableness a superpower if you will I said that to my sister who lives with anxiety and depression she goes superpower we're not the X Men we're the Xanax Men <laughs> which we are I think it's it's I did a whole TEDx talk on it called Mental with Benefits the Evolutionary Advantages of Mental Illness. I believe my my depression and thoughts of suicide are simply the flip side of my comedic ability, creativity, imagination, and I think they go hand in glove. If somebody said to me, look, Frank, I got one pill, you take it one time, you'll never be depressed again, you'll never be suicidal, but the only side effect is you, you will no longer think or process information like a comedian, I wouldn't take the pill because I believe it's... It's all part and parcel. I can teach you to write stand-up comedy. I can teach you to perform stand-up comedy. What I cannot teach you to do is process information the way my brain does. I, I taught a class called Stand-Up for Mental Health. It's a, it's a class for people who have a diagnosis. You have to have a mental health diagnosis. It has to be taught by somebody with a diagnosis. And the idea is that these people want to write and perform stand-up comedy based on their diagnosis. And, and the idea is to destigmatize, the, to change people's impression of what someone with mental illness looks and sounds like. You know, public speaking is, is it terrifies people. But imagine getting up and public speaking about something as personal, and as as your mental illness, and that that's sort of vulnerability on stage. And they were my best students ever. The stuff that came out of their mouths did not need editing. They the jokes came out fully formed. It was amazing to watch. I had a young woman named Tosh. I said, Tosh, what do you got for me today? She goes, well, my boyfriend said he wants to break up with me. I said, well, uh, why did he want to break up with you? She said, because he wants to see other people. I said, what did you say? She said, I told him I'm bipolar. Give me a minute. <laughs> Brilliant. I, I mean, that's what came out of her mouth. <laughs> it happened over and over. The uh, neuronormal people, neurotypical comics, that would have been a whole page of writing you know, just a solid, like a notebook paper page, I would have had gone through with a black Sharpie and redacted about three-fourths of it to take out everything that didn't move the narrative forward. But these kids, you 
know, uh, Camille, last name withheld, comic client confidentiality, said to me, I said, what you got for me, Camille? And she had a horrible backstory, nightmarish childhood, all sorts of mental illness. She goes, well, I want to see my psychiatrist. I go, yeah. She goes, he asked if I was depressed. I said, yes. He asked if I was having thoughts of suicide. I said, yes. He asked me if I had a plan. I said, I have five plans. He said, five plans? I said, yeah. Do you want to hear them all or just the ones that involve you? (laughs) I mean, that's the way it came out of It's ready for stage. You mentioned the business community, and you suspect that there could be a high rate of depression among businessmen and women. And on one of your famous TEDx talks, you mentioned Anthony Bourdain. Yes, and Kate Spade died within a month of one another. Uh, that is a misconception oftentimes among neuronormal people, is why would someone who had money in the bank, had his own show, very successful, you know, renowned worldwide, Robin Williams, same thing, Kate Spade, same thing, uh, appearing to have it all. The depression for people who are hardwired for it is often not situational. And I always worry, what's going to happen when I'm this depressed and things aren't? And, of course, I found out. But I believe Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, uh, this is my opinion, there was a survey, several of them, said one-third of entrepreneurs are depressed and suicidal. And the clinicians in each survey said they believed it was because of a variety of factors. For example, lack of sleep, long hours, unmet expectations. I believe that's the case for probably for most of those people, but I believe there is a significant subset where they were like I was. I was married to the wrong woman, although she was lovely. We didn't belong together. She should have never gotten married, but opposites attract. She was pregnant. I wasn't. And so... And I was doing a job, insurance, great business, just not for me. And I was not going to the comedy club for open mic because my first wife did not like that idea. And I realized that I was depressed and suicidal. If I didn't change something, I was going to kill myself sooner rather than later. So I came to the conclusion immediately, look, what have I got to lose? I could quit my job, divorce my wife, try comedy. If it doesn't work, and I do believe it will, but if it doesn't, I can still at that point kill myself. So suicide is the secret of my success because I had absolutely nothing to lose by trying. I could put it all on one roll of the dice, and if it came up craps, well, I was going to kill myself anyway. I think Anthony Bourdain, he fell in love with food when he was eight years old and his folks took him to France. And all through high school, he worked in a couple of restaurants. When he went to Vassar to college, he was still working in a couple of restaurants. He loved culinary. And he was doing well at Vassar. I don't know what his major was, but I, I suspect he came to the point where he's thinking, you know, great school, got good grades, this is a great major, but this is not what I am supposed to be doing. I am supposed to be cooking. And so, and maybe he was depressed and suicidal and thought to himself, as I did, you know, if I don't change something, I'm going to kill myself. And then next thought being, oh my gosh, I could quit Vassar, go to the Culinary Institute, if that works out great. If it doesn't, I can still kill myself. And Kate Spade was the head of the accessory, accessory department at Vanity Fair magazine, I believe. Big-time job. Great job. But I think she probably said to herself, I'm not supposed to be reviewing other people's fashions. I'm supposed to have my own fashion line. And same basic thought process. If I don't change something, I'm going to kill myself. Well, you know, I'm, I'll try. I'll I'm trying to create a, a line of fashion. If it works out great, if it doesn't, I can still kill myself. And, of course, she tried out, and she did, and she was very successful and sold it for millions of dollars. And the sad thing about Kate beyond her passing, 
as her sister said, that she had suggested therapy for Kate. And Kate Spade had said, I don't want to get therapy because if anybody finds out, it will damage my happy-go-lucky brand. Yeah, of course, you know, hanging yourself with your scarf is not going to do it, but uh, which she did. Uh, so the I, irony. I believe, and I've met other entrepreneurs who have the very same thought process. They're living a life they don't believe they should be living. They have a dream. They think they should be over there doing that. And they realize they're suicidal. Well, what the heck? That's the advantage that we have over neurotypical people because a neurotypical person, divorce wife, quit job, try comedy. If it works, great. But if it doesn't, they will have lost everything. And we, we my compadres, my tribe, have nothing to lose. So that gives us an advantage. So we often mistake sadness and the ordinary setbacks in life that cause emotional pain with depression. And then there's the question of intervention. Here's Frank King's take. Yes, absolutely. Suicide is the most preventable cause of death on the planet. It's, and you're correct. Most people at some point in time experience situational depression, bankruptcy, divorce, flunking out of college, losing a job, and oftentimes require short-term medication. Uh, it's very, and, and people with my illnesses, our depression, thoughts, suicide can be triggered by a short-term situational uh, condition. However, in both cases, if you know what to look for and what to listen for, eight out of ten people who are contemplating suicide are ambivalent. They want somebody to notice and say something. And nine out of ten people who are rolling up on a suicide attempt, in the last week before they attempt, nine out of ten give hints, behavioral Direct, indirect, verbal, nonverbal. So we have the opportunity to save a great number of these people, and that's what I teach in my keynotes is the signs and symptoms of depression and thoughts of suicide, what to say, what not to say, what to do, what not to do, how to find resources. And because it 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 is preventable. And you don't have to be a, you do not have to be a clinician to prevent it. Anybody with the proper training, knowing what to look for and what to say can stop a suicide. So loneliness, social isolation are, I presume, contributing factors to suicide. And today, of course, we have the shutdowns, the coronavirus. So what is the picture today in terms of suicide statistics and folks calling hotlines looking for a rescue? Well, the numbers of people calling the suicide prevention lifelines are up a significant amount, double digits. So is or are incidents of domestic abuse and child abuse because they're all stuck at home together. And that's going to be one of the outcomes of this pandemic that we won't know for a while. I, you know, how many additional, until we look back, how many additional suicides did we have? Last year we had 47,000 suicides in the U.S., one every 11 minutes. And that does not count opioid deaths. There's another 65,000 roughly opioid deaths, and we don't know how many were suicides, how many were accidental overdoses. So I guess when we look back at 2020, we'll have to see what the no how how much higher the numbers are than there were in 2019. And and I think the the good news for people with mental illness generally is that we live in an uncertain world. Every day, we wake up in an uncertain world every day, regardless of the pandemic. 
And so I've actually been doing webinars and radio interviews and keynotes. I've got a keynote called Social Distancing and Staying Sane. And I'm teaching neuronormal people how to create a self-care plan, how to handle waking up every morning in an uncertain world. A buddy of mine called me. He goes, Frank, you work in mental health, right? I go, yeah. He goes, I've, I've got this. I'm mentally, I'm just, I'm having trouble. Uh, tell me if there's a name for this. I go, well, describe your symptoms. He goes, well, I can't eat, I can't sleep, or I overeat, oversleep. When I wake up, I can't get out of bed. I can't drag myself to the bathroom. I just, I, you know, I, I'm feeling hopeless. Is there a mental health name for that? And I said, yeah, it's Tuesday. Because <laughs> that, that, that's, that's my, I mean, that's, you know. So I've been teaching people how to. You know, it's all about controlling the things you can control, preparing for the worst, hoping for the best. I feel like, you know, set your alarm, get up in the morning at the same time, even though you don't have to go to work per se. You know, go to bed roughly the same time, plan your meal times, and your, I would say meditate once or twice a day, get some exercise, limit your media exposure. And, you know, there's, there, and there are other things you can do to, as a self-care plan, as someone who has to work from home, or you've lost your job, you've been furloughed, you're not working from home, you're just drawing unemployment. And also you need to advocate for yourself. Don't hide your head in a hole. Call your phone company, all the power, the power company, the water company, trash. Call your mortgage company. You know, get proactive. Everybody's got a plan to help, you know, everybody out with their bills. Just, yeah, don't ignore them. They're not going away. You need to, you know, get in line with everybody else and get a plan. And same thing with your health, you know. Stay in touch with your doctor. Most health plans have a portal where you can email your doctor and ask him a question. I did. I said, Doc, look, I've got heart disease. And, you know, what extra precautions do I have to take during the COVID the pandemic? And he sent me a list of things he thought I should do in addition to what most people do because I have a family history of heart disease. So it turns out that people with mental illness are in a great position to help other people survive this because, as I said, we wake up. Having mental illness is like this. There's a Greek character named Sisyphus, and he gave fire to man. And his punishment was he had to roll a rock up a hill every day with the idea, you know, at some point he would get it over top of the hill and it would roll down the other side. But every time he got it near the top, it rolled back down to the bottom of the hill. And having a mental illness is like that. You wake up every morning, there's a rock in a hill. Some days the rock is small and the hill is not so steep. Some days the rock is a boulder and the hill is Kilimanjaro. But every day when you have mental illness, there's a rock and a hill, and, and, you know, I came to a point, Anthony Bourdain, obviously Kate Spade, when we woke up and just couldn't move the rock. And so my job as a mental health suicide prevention speaker is to make sure that when the people that hear me speak, that they and their loved ones, when they wake up in the morning, they can still move that rock. We were talking about the coronavirus pandemic and shutdowns. You brushed up against that on a cruise ship where you were... Yeah. <laughs> set up to do a gig. Can you tell us about that? It made a lot yeah, well, of news headlines. Part of the part of the pun, I was at ground zero, although it was in the water. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was February 1st. We were in Hong Kong and set sail. And, and there were two ships that set sail from Hong Kong. Hong Kong? Yeah, Hong Kong on the 1st of February. One was the Holland America Westerdam. That was my ship. And the other was the Diamond Princess. Now, in Holland, America, we did not allow anybody on that ship who had been to mainland China in the previous two weeks. The Diamond Princess did not do that. They let anybody on who wanted to get on. Unfortunately, because we were both in the same area of the world and both had cruise ship in our name, people conflated the two cruise ships. So we sailed for two weeks. 
we we only hit one port because we were turned away from five or six ports, turned away from the Philippines, South Korea, Japan, uh, Guam, and one other. And so we just sailed around in circles for two weeks. And we finally landed in Cambodia. I'm sure somebody had to write a check for that. And we got off the plane in Cambodia, and we were they were flying us from a little town in Cambodia where we got off to Phnom Penh, which had a big international airport. And in the process of getting us off the ship to the hotels in the airport, one of the first flights that, was, that left Cambodia, a woman on there spiked a fever, I guess. When she got to Kuala Lumpur, they took her off the plane, they declared that she had the virus, and that froze everybody from my ship in place. They kept the people that had gotten to Kuala Lumpur there. They kept us in the hotel where we were in Phnom Penh. They kept a couple hundred people on the ship uh, along with the crew, waiting to figure out if she, in fact, really had the virus. So that was on the 15th. On the 16th, I was done. I mean, I my contract was up. There was a guy there from the U.S. CDC at the hotel who was supervising the testing of all the people in the hotel. By the way... 200 passengers left the hotel before the testing. I set my flight arrangements on the 16th at 11 in the evening so I could be there to be tested. Wouldn't have the results, but I would be tested, and the CDC would have the results eventually. And I asked the guy from CDC, I go, hey, man, is there any reason I can't fly home? And he goes, uh, well, you aren't in China. It's been 14 days. Nobody on the ship so far except the woman in Kuala Lumpur, and I'm not sure about her, has the virus. And you have to be within 15 feet of, no, you have to be within six feet of somebody for 15 minutes to catch the virus. I said, so what you're telling me is if I didn't sleep with the old lady, if she has the virus, I'm good to go. And he goes, yeah, Frank, you can go home. So I bought a ticket on, on Emirates Airlines for 1500 $1,600, and I flew myself home, and I made the mistake. Somebody alerted the media that I was coming back from that part of the world. There were two TV stations at the airport. I made the mistake of speaking to the media, and even though I told them over and over, nobody on their ship was quarantined. The hotel was not quarantined. I was just joking about jumping quarantine. They said they'd rather we didn't leave the hotel so they could keep track of us, but the CDC in Cambodia said go. But, of course, that doesn't get clicks or eyeballs or sell newspapers. So every headline screamed, comedian jumps quarantine. So the, the troll storm, the Twitter storm, that followed was just, I had to change my home phone number, I had shut down three social media accounts for a couple of weeks, had to handle death threats, all because nobody quoted me properly, you know, and eventually they tested everybody on my ship, and all 2,500 of us, pastors and crew, nobody ever had the virus, ever, uh, unlike the Diamond Princess, which was ravaged by it. But, of course, you know, that nobody reads the retraction, Nobody, nobody believes me when I say I didn't. Guy, a guy called me up because you, you came back to the county to kill everybody. I said no. I've got a list, and you just made the VIP section. <laughs> and here's the benefit of being suicidal. I got another call, and the guy says, "I know where you work out. I know when you work out. You know the gym. I'm coming to kill you." And I said, "Okay, well that's fine. Just know this. I've been trying to do that to myself for 40 years." <laughs> And I, I don't want to die, but I'm not frightened of it. So when you come, you know, the, as they say, if you want, if you come to, after the king, you better kill the king because otherwise. 
blood on his hand. Uh, anyway. So you're setting the record straight here, Frank. You're an innocent party in all of this. Yes, I, I've been pitching a TEDx talk called Going Viral, How the Cancel Culture and the Coronavirus Killed My Comedy Career, because that's what was happening. It's that cancel culture. There's this moral outrage of either an actual or perceived violation of somebody's morals, and they go after you to... You know, to ruin your career, to to you know, get you make it so that you don't get booked again, or that you lose bookings, and so it's uh, that's happening a lot in celebrity circles and in the arts. Somebody yeah. does something that's perceived as offensive or not politically correct or whatever, and it's a mob riot, and and their the career ends completely. Yeah. And in some cases, I mean, there is a use for that. You know, um, Jeffrey Epstein is a good example. Harvey Weinstein, um, the comedian, uh, Louis C.K. I mean, he would expose himself to female comedians on the road in comedy clubs. You know, there are people who do things that are egregious, that are we all agree are uh, beyond the pale. But then there are some of us who just get caught up. And, and the, the TED Talk, I'm going to talk about how the media, they feed on it. Because if they misquote me, and the headline says, Comedian Jumps Quarantine, then there's all this Twitter and Facebook and Instagram traffic in which they are, they are, you know, they report the story. People are sharing the story on social media. And so the, they're getting the benefit of all that SEO. So they have a, a dog in the hunt to, to ramp up the, you know, the temperature on the story. So they, they are the beneficiaries of the clicks and, you know, the eyeballs. They have no, they have no real incentive to, Here's the here's the line that I and I warn people about this. When the media outlet says, "Don't you want to get your side of the story out?" The answer is yes, but the, but, but that's not what's going to happen. They don't care about your side of the story. Their goals are different than your goals. You want to get the truth out. They want to sell newspapers, get clicks, get eyeballs. So they're going to do whatever it is they have to do. I mean, I'm not a big believer in fake news. I think that's you know that's, that's nonsense. I mean, it's it's for, for the current administration. If if they don't like what the newspaper reported, it's fake news. But that's this is different. This is they're sensationalizing something to get clicks and eyeballs, and you know, and feed the Twitter mob. We'll be right back after this wee break. Why are twenty veterans a day taking their own lives? In this new gripping, brutally honest memoir, Iraq War veteran Tom Voss reveals the answer and an unexpected solution to the veteran suicide epidemic. Driven to the brink of suicide by the moral injury of war, Voss walked 2,700 miles across America in search of healing. What he found was something medication and talk therapy couldn't give him, relief from the guilt, shame, and sorrow that had been torturing him for years. A relief that came in the most unexpected form, meditation and sacred breathing techniques that shattered his understanding of war and himself. Dr. David Shulkin, Ninth Secretary of the VA, says where war ends will inspire countless others, leaving them with a sense of purpose and hope. Brian Kinsella of Stop Soldier Suicide calls where war ends a captivating personal journey written with a compelling urgency. For veterans, their families, and anyone suffering from trauma, where war ends offers an antidote to the moral injury epidemic. Get your copy today on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, IndieBound, or ask for it at your favorite library or independent bookstore. So before we pick up with our interview with the mental health comedian and suicide prevention speaker, Frank King, 
We'll just say that emotional pain, loneliness is real out there. So let's all stay close, especially during these strange days of the coronavirus shutdowns and scenes of street mayhem in the US and around the globe. Lots of love, hugs and prayers. Where exactly is Frank King's career since his headline-grabbing COVID-19 international cruise ship drama? Here's Frank. Well, I'm, I won't be working on the cruise ships anytime soon because they got a lot of blowback on social media because people felt like they let me escape. And so it shook the building in Seattle where, where Holland America is based all the way up to the CEO of Holland America. I mean, they, 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 they were not happy with me. So chances are my cruising career is over. Fortunately, my comedy career was somewhat separate from my speaking career. So there was a lot of negative traffic on my personal Facebook page, a little bit on my business Facebook page, very little on my LinkedIn page, which is where most of my business, you know, social media activity. So, and I lost two engagements, one on the 20th of February, one on the 24th, which, by the way, when I file for unemployment, they say, when were you impacted by the COVID? When did you lose work? And, well, I, that week of the 20th of February, I lost the first job. The week of the 24th, I lost the second job. So the unemployment benefits go back to that point. They are a direct result, losing those of the COVID and of the and in part of the social media news backlog. I mean, I was on the cover of the London Daily News, the London Independent, the London Sun, the New York Post. Uh, I was on Entertainment Tonight. Not me, but story today's show uh, the evening news lester holt i mean I, I always said i wanted to go out in a blaze of glory when i got fired from my last cruise line i had no idea that it would be <laughs> so, i have my 15 minutes of fame and i'm i'm done you are well known in speaking circles for your tedx talks and as a suicide prevention speaker now you're a household name completely well here's what here's the good news about the pandemic so I said, how did, how did you get yourself off first page Google? I said, it took a pandemic. As soon as the pandemic hit mm. in the U.S., I was old news, which is I was, you know, you still, if you type my name in Google, Frank King, comedian, quarantine, cruise ship, you'll find, you know, dozens of stories. But now buried, thank the Lord. Speaking of social media, you talk about digital media addiction when you're talking to groups. Yes. smartphones, social media, and suicide. What's that about? Well, starting in 2012, in the U.S., the smartphone ownership crossed the 50% mark, meaning more than half the people in the U.S. owned a smartphone. And if you look at the smartphone ownership graph, and you look at a graph that charts self-reported major depressive disorder among teens and self-reported thoughts of suicide among teens, you'll notice that the lines, the three lines, phone ownership, depression, suicide, all track in an upward direction. So that we can't say yet that there is a, a correlation between smartphone ownership, social media, depression, and suicide. I believe there is a connection. I have trouble believing it's a coincidence. Part of the problem is, since 2012, last survey I saw, it said young people are spending 40% less time in person with their peers than the previous generation. In other words, they're not hanging out at the mall face-to-face -face with their peers and that's happening 40% less of the time than the previous generation. So you have more time staring into the screen and, 
and almost a half, almost half as much, you know, less time in person. Somebody said to me, "Who do you think the loneliest group of people in the U.S. are?" And I said, "Well, it's probably the people in nursing homes, 70s and 80s years, 80 years old." And they said, "No, it's teenage girls, self-reported loneliness." And I believe, again, I can't can't correlate it with smartphone and social media, but I do believe there's a connection. It's a bit of a misnomer, social media. What's social about it if people are feeling isolated when they're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter? We're not disparaging any of these platforms, but it's the abuses which critics would point to and the possible connection with suicide rates. Yeah, and plus, you know, people tend to live their best lives online, on social media, so everybody puts their best face forward. I didn't have an, any idea of how bad internet bullying could be. I thought, how could how could you bully somebody on the internet? Well, after <laughs> coming back from Cambodia and you know facing the death threats and you know and uh, all, all that, I realized I have a whole new respect for teenagers because the people that I that came after me, I'll never meet. Chances are, but the people that come after young people are often the people they go to school with every day. They're, when I was a kid. When you left the schoolyard, you left the bully behind. These kids take the bully home in their pocket. So I can see why that is stressful and can lead to depression and thoughts of suicide. I've got a friend who's a psychiatric nurse and a psychologist. She has a daughter who has some mental health issues. Her daughter was bullied into a suicide attempt, three tweets, one morning, when they were headed out to go skiing. You look fat in your ski suit. You don't really know how to ski. Nobody likes you. And she found her daughter on the ground bleeding out. So there is help out there for people who are feeling suicidal, and I'm sure you'd encourage people in these situations to reach out to family, friends, and peers, and colleagues at work. Yes, although people with mental illness tend not to reach out. We don't want to burden people with the problem. Uh, there's a stigma. There's a stigma attached to mental illness, which which comes with shame. There's a stigma, a separate stigma attached to thoughts of suicide, which again comes with shame. The tendency sometimes is not to reach out or reach out in a in a fashion where you're hinting at it, as I mentioned. Nine out of ten people give hints, but because you know, if, if you're a clinician and I tell you I'm, if I, I tell you that I have chronic suicidal ideation, and you said to me, "When was the last time you thought about suicide?" I would say to you, "What time is it?" <laughs> you're like, what, what time is it? Well, I know this morning when I was at the railroad crossing, I'm watching the train thing, and I could just pull onto the tracks. Well. If I say that to you and you're a clinician, you are duty-bound by law in most states to, you know, have me arrested, taken in front of a judge, and they would ask for an involuntary detention for three days. If we could give people permission to give voice to their feelings of depression and thoughts of suicide without risking three days in a gated facility with no shoestrings or belt, we, you know, people might be more forthcoming. And there's a great class in the U.S., maybe other places, called mentalhealthfirstaid.org. They have classes all over the place. It's eight hours. It's usually free or maybe 25 bucks. And oftentimes they charge 25 bucks because they throw in lunch. It's basically a mental health 101. You start with depression, thoughts, suicide. You work your way through schizoaffective disorder. All the way through, let's say, non-lethal self-harm like cutting, pinching, you know, burning. Things that young women often do, which is non-lethal. But, so, and, and give you a binder. So, Let's say you got a grandchild, and you think maybe they're depressed. So you open up your binder, you look at the symptoms of depression, then you look at the where, where the resources are and solutions and what to say. It's a great eight-hour course, and I think that would save lives if people knew how to 
spot because people always say after suicide, almost always after suicide, he never gave any indication. I had no idea. He never said anything. He never gave any signs. Chances are there were signs. There were indications. You just didn't know what to look for. You talk about stress in the workplace. In your talks, you have this idea of find the chuckles and change, how to find the funny and frustrations, to find the punchlines and the pain. Well, comedy is tragedy plus time. I've got a friend who's doing a TEDx talk, and one of the tips, one of the takeaways in the TEDx talk, because TEDx is always asking you what are the takeaways, what are the learning objectives. One of them for her is keep a journal, failure and frustration. And you may not find the funny in it right away, but a week, a month, a year later when you go back, tragedy plus time, you may be able to see and find the funny in what had happened. You just need that distance oftentimes. The longer you do comedy, the shorter the time between tragedy and comedy. I had a heart attack in the woods, half a mile in the woods, by myself with the dogs. I had T-Mobile, so I didn't have cell service. And I was making jokes from the time I I was able to get down the hill, back to the car, and get me and the dogs home two miles away. And then by the time I got home, I'm doing comedy in real time, having a massive heart attack. The nurse, when I got to triage, the great thing about going to the hospital with heart attack symptom is there's no waiting. Nobody gives a shippa about HIPAA. And so they rolled me back into a little triage unit, and the nurse said to me, Frank, I have one question I have to ask you. And I said through my pain, I'm married, honey, but I love the way you think. (laughs) She goes, no. She's trying not to laugh. She goes, no, your full name is Frank Marshall King III. What do you like to be called? I said, through the pain, Big Daddy. (laughs) To this day, when I go back to Oregon Heart and Vascular and I see somebody that I met that morning, they go, hey, Big Daddy. I like it. So, yeah. What else is on the calendar for Frank King? What's your, your schedule look like? Well, I lost every engagement, either canceled or rescheduled, um, rescheduled for next year. Matter of fact, I got an email this morning for someone I was supposed to speak for in March, a dental group. I do um, suicide prevention as a dental practice health and safety issue. In the state of Washington, every health care provider, chiropractor, dentist, nurse, doctor, osteopath, they have to have three hours of suicide prevention continuing education to renew their licenses in 2020. So it's one of these groups that I was supposed to speak to in March to do my three-hour CE. In terms of this year, I've got a virtual event on Thursday. It, it'll be, uh, the people are in Nebraska. It was on the on the calendar for live, and they decided to go ahead and have the event, but they're doing it, so I'll do a virtual keynote for an hour and a half, and they'll get continuing education credit. And then on the 26th, of June, a foundation in Portland contacted me. Again, they had planned a live event, and they were so far down the road on the event, they thought we can't just not have it. So they're going to do it virtually. Uh, those are the only, that's all I've got booked through the end of the year. And sadly, I was having my best year ever. I mean, I had a calendar, had lots of gigs, making a good, making good money. And then, of course, the pandemic is. So, I mean, it will recover. We will come back. A lot of people in the arts and entertainment world have suffered just like you. As you say, it will come back. Does Jay Leno stay in touch with you? What does he think of your activity on the TEDx circuit and the motivational talks you give? Well, when, when, we, uh, when he left the Tonight Show, he called me up, and I said, would you mind doing a little demo 
or a little uh, testimonial video clip. And he said, yeah, you know, uh, NBC doesn't like me to do anything on video. Uh, he said, but if you ever need anything, you know, uh, somehow I can help you out, uh, just call Helga, that's his personal assistant, and let her know. So I have written a book with two other authors, co-authors, on men's mental health. One of the one of the authors, a woman named Sarah Gare, teaches suicide prevention to first responders, mostly men. And she went to Barnes and Noble looking for a book on mental health for men. She thought she could give it to some of the fellas, you know, when appropriate, and couldn't find a book on men's mental health. So she got on Amazon and looked, and there was nothing specific to men's mental health. So she thought, well, we need to write one. So she contacted a friend named Sally Spencer Thomas, a psychologist, and. They contacted me and said, would you make it funny? And we're going to make it look like an automobile, automobile owner's manual. Would you add the automobile metaphors? And I said, wait a minute. You two ladies are writing a book on men's mental health. Don't you think you might need, oh, I don't know, a man? And so they said, yes. So I, I said, I'll, I'll, I'll make it funny. I'll add the car metaphors. But I want to be a co-author. And I want to voice the book for Audible. And so I just got done voicing the first volume Audible that went up on Audible last week, and so this it was going to be one book, but but it turned into a thousand pages. So it's not going to be four books. It's an anthology. It's like chicken soup for the tortured man's soul. The book is called Guts, G-U-T-S, Grit, G-R-I-T, Guts, Grit, and the Grind, G-R-I-N-D, a mental mechanics manual. Yes, and then there's a dozen contributors, men who contributed their stories of their struggles, and how they're coping. Because we did a survey. We asked men about what kind of advice they wanted and how. And they said, we want advice from real men who have real problems and how they're actually dealing with them. So each story is like that. It's bankruptcy, divorce. If somebody wants to purchase this, they go online. Where do they purchase? Amazon. Or if they would like a free copy of the audio book, the entire MP3 unabridged, if they go to my website, thementalhealthcomedian.com, the mental health comedian, if you go there and you give me an email address, I will. you can download the unabridged audio book, which I've voiced, the MP3, the entire thing for nothing. Frank Ting, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Keep the laughter going. Well, and thank you for caring. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's really what it takes. Someone, A, to care, and B, to plant the seed of hope and we can save people you've been listening to life on planet earth with john aiden Byrne. to reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities call 973-664-9460 in the u.s or email burndesk at gmail.com that's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.